Greetings and salutations. You are listening to the Into the North podcast, where we take a look at the competitive side of the Commander format, also known as CDH. I'm one of your hosts, Lyndon, a.k.a. Noobsource, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Matt, a.k.a. Null. Yo, yo. Reed, a.k.a. Sick Robot. How you doing? And Morgan, a.k.a. Spleenface. What's up, everyone? And in this episode, we'll be covering Turn Order in CDH. Uh, and this uh, episode topic comes to us uh, from our uh, topic requests channel on our Discord server from uh, Garden. Okay, yikes. <laughs> uh, Garden of Throne. Okay, thank you, Reed. Thanks for the save there. <laughs> yeah, um, anytime. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, you know, great episode topic. And if uh, any of our listeners would like to uh, have a particular topic in mind that they would like to uh, hear us talk about, uh, there's a channel on our Discord server where you can suggest things. Um, but yeah, before we get into that, uh, what have you guys been up to since the last episode? Which is a weird kind of fake question because you guys got to, you know, meet up for the previous episode like a week ago. And <laughs> I wasn't able to make yes. it. So it's been a long time since I've been able to, to kind so, of yeah. about, talk to you guys about, podcast-wise. How about, you, but... how about you tell us what you've been doing since the last episode that you were on, which was... Uh, the two one months ago, Phil, I want to say three yeah, months two, ago. Two months ago. <laughs> okay, actually, wow. July. You know, I do have something I want to talk about. It's <laughs> a sh- shared experience with Reed, actually, uh, <laughs> and some other friends of the show. So we went to this. There was this event this past weekend um, called Brew at the Zoo uh, at the Toronto Zoo. Uh, oh, yeah, dude, it was that one was legendary beautiful. event. <laughs> was it? Yeah. That, that one's not happening again. It's not we, happening we, again. We, but we I, won't go into detail like super deep on that one, but like it's, there's there's no shot they run that one back in the same format. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll give I'll give wow. a brief summary, which is the, the the previous event was basically you'd pay like eighty dollars. You know, base zoo entry is like thirty dollars. You pay eighty dollars, and they'd like have they close down the entire kind of zoo to eight, unless you're you know under if you're under drinking age you couldn't go in. And you'd walk around to different like beer vendors. You could uh, sample their stuff and buy beers and whatever. The way so basically because of weird scheduling, clerical error. I don't know some some divine miracle. The way it worked this time, you only had to pay zoo entry, and you could just walk into this particular area where there was a free beer fest. There was oh, no you yeah. didn't pay for anything. <laughs> yeah, there was you'd just walk around with a sample cup, and you'd get just free beers or, or, or drinks of whatever you want. And also they were giving away free swag. Oh yeah. Also, previous years they they had it run in time slots, so like eleven to two. This and year, you get, like, drink no time slots. Stuff. Yeah, it was just yeah, eleven yeah. to six. So for an we show day. up. <laughs> so I, I show up with friends of the show, uh, Tim and Zach, uh, and and a bunch of a uh, bunch of uh, their friends, and we get to the zoo and we're like, because we we initially we were like, you know, this is going to be kind of a broke like this, this is not going to be a good event expectations were really low because there was like a bunch of last minute changes to the event and they because initially everyone else bought like their main ticket like the 80 dollars ticket which ended up getting like partially refunded or whatever so i was like oh dude this is gonna suck show up uh it was so we're like no way this is gonna get shut down in an hour uh let's text everyone we know in toronto to be like yo get to the, get to the fucking zoo <laughs> it's just not this is an insane event and then uh uh, Reed ended up uh, was, showing yeah, up. Yeah, I was, was I was sick. downtown playing in a melee tournament, and for anybody like listening, like I I took transit to get there, so it's like <laughs> the zoo is like a it's like a three hour transit or like two and a half hour transit from downtown. Um, 
I was going to a melee tournament, and I got this text on my way in. I'm like, okay, you know what? On the off chance, and it wasn't an off chance, on the chance that I just completely <laughs> bust her out, I'm immediately, like, calling an Uber, getting to a subway station, and going out to the zoo to hang out for this. And I went 02 and immediately got an Uber to go to a subway stop so that I could get there. And it was worth it. Reed showed up, and it was, like, an hour and a half before close, and we yep. literally were feeding him drinks nonstop. It was, <laughs> it was a good time. And then also, dude, what an absolute winner of an event. Dude, you tell anyone that you're like, yeah, dude, we're just gonna get drunk and go look at animals at the zoo. Genius. Yeah, instant. Yeah. Instant, yes. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and we got to look at some animals and it was uh, a lot of fun. You guys didn't I try definitely... to like play outside on picnic tables. <laughs> <laughs> In the dude, wind. Tim was too busy falling. Literally, he's he's like Kramer from Seinfeld. Man, he was oh, just Jesus. absolutely falling all over the place. I think he fell like three times. Spaghetti a bunch of. Uh, chicken tendies and fries all over the floor. It was. Uh... Oh no! <laughs> the that's, that's the that's the true tragedy. Yeah, <laughs> spilling food in the zoo just sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, um, <laughs> so that's what I've been up to, and I guess you guys have already talked about it. So uh, we can move on. Uh, next up is housekeeping, where we have uh, zero new patrons uh, to talk about this time because uh, we're. You guys got to cover it last time. Yeah, we're so. fitting this one in pretty tight to the last recording. Yeah. So. <laughs> we're recording pretty close. Uh, so yeah, no new patrons, but, you know, no no harm in shouting out all of our existing patrons. Uh, thank you, guys. You rock. Uh, you rock. And then we can move on to new developments, uh, which, Morgan Reed, I'll let you guys get this one. Yeah, definitely. Um, so... As of the time of recording, uh, yesterday, well, uh, yeah, whatever, it's already in there. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like pinpointing <laughs> our times of recordings, because I feel like you lose some of the mystique. But um, yesterday, uh, myself and Morgan actually cast the uh, the uh, r slash CDH Discord Path of Dominance 1 tournament. Um, pretty cool. Uh, so it was a, a what, 24-person tournament, I think? Um, yeah, yeah, and... it was... I think kind of kind of a lower turnout than they were expecting, but I'm assuming as like the you know as as it being named Path of Dominance one might indicate, there's going to be more of them, yep. and uh, <laughs> hopefully, yeah, we'll get uh, some good turnout for for the later ones. That was great. Um, me and Morgan actually did a uh, did like a five hour commentary block uh, for the end of the tournament, so we covered uh, rounds like three to the end of top four, um, or the end of the tournament rather. Uh, and that was that was pretty fun, honestly. Um, definitely down to do more commentary. And I think that's actually the first time me and Morgan have done commentary together uh, on a blog. Yeah, I think so. Cool. At least at least on like a live tournament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that was that was pretty cool. Because like we, I mean, we won't get into it super hard here, but like we have thoughts on commentary. Um, Dude, we spent like five <laughs> hours of our drive to Philadelphia, to Philadelphia. talking about like, the philosophy of about, CDH commentary, like, how CDH commentary should be done. Um, so it was sort of it was sort of cool to get like to like try to put some of that into practice and to like work through some of it on the fly. Um, and also just like you know, great time watching CDH and talking about like some frankly insane stuff that happened there um, was pretty cool. Um, we will say uh, a congrats to. Uh, the Koenos, who ended up taking it down with Winota. Winota had, like, a dominant showing, uh, that tournament. Um, it seems like, uh, either... I, I don't think we ever got to the bottom of it, um, like, truly in terms of the, uh, 
uh, cause, but uh, it seems like people like either weren't packing quite enough removal or weren't quite respecting Winota enough in mulligans. Um, and we saw like a bunch of games where Winota just sort of ran over a table. Um, Dude, with another little, one. Uh, pretty little uh, barriers, but yeah, so grats to Konos. Um, we also ended up with the top four with a. Uh, it was uh, Ring 13, Opal Wave, and uh, I forget who the last person was. And they're also missing from the standings uh, now. Twang? I can't find them. Twang. Twang. On a blue farm. Uh, and we, yeah, so we actually had a Ring 13 on Sacred Druid. So good stuff. Love to see that. Um, and we had uh, Opal Wave on Dargo Sadar in top four, which is uh, uh, crazy, right? Sick. Hot. Yeah. So I'm I'm I as you might be able to tell I'm I'm pretty happy with that top four. I think that's pretty hot. I've actually I've actually been proved wrong twice now on me thinking that Dargo Sadar does not have legs. Um, we had somebody take it to the uh, to the cash cards tournament as well and do pretty well there, and then had Opal Wave make top four this tournament. So I will concede that I was proved wrong on that deck. <laughs> Dude, so until someone someone takes down a tournament, you you can get away with Dargo Sadar because people will look at your commanders and be like, "What?" Exactly. <laughs> actually, I did want to say actually that I didn't even realize because um, I was like looking at uh, this stuff out of the uh, uh, domi- out of the newest Dominaria set, not Brothers Worth yet. But I, they all have names. All the sets are too close together now. I don't know. Newest Dominaria set that's not Brothers War. Um, Dominaria United. That's the one. Uh, had some stuff for. Uh, for a Sarah specifically, so I was like, "Oh yeah, you have like Defiler, you have like the new uh, legendary uh, Talisman." Turns out there's also a Red Defiler, and that Talisman or whatever the uh, Honorborn Shaku colored source also works with Dargo. Um, oh, which were true. two like major yeah. additions to that deck. Because That's actually huge. The Defiler is like awesome to have there because it gives you like pings off of the Phyrexian cast for uh, for Dargo. So if you have like a if you have like Alter Dementia, you can usually like mill out a table before you run out of life and with a goblin bombardment you can pay two life to shock stuff um and then also like if you have other stuff going you can use that so i thought that was pretty hot i completely missed that that's now in the deck uh but yeah congrats to everybody that played there Reed was too busy getting distracted with the black defiler for a sarah correct (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um yeah good stuff so Let's uh, let's get into the meat and potatoes of the show, uh, which again is turn order in CEDH. So we figured we'd start off by discussing. I mean, we've, there's some data on this, and and we've kind of looked. I know Command Zone did some stuff for like casual, uh, and what we've got is some data from the metagame project to talk about how much seeding affects your win rate. Um, so we're just going to use this. We're going to give some numbers, and then you can use this to kind of as a backdrop for the rest of the discussions in the show. But yeah, turns out uh, seeding does matter for her win rate. <laughs> like uh, and it matters a lot. Uh, a lot. So we've got player one uh, has a 36.6% win rate. Player as two, of, 20... As of, as of the most recent metagame project yeah. uh, review, which is the uh, version 5 September edition, I believe, as of the time of recording. Um, but you can go back through Squirrel Mobs Reddit history. Anyway, we'll go back through the uh, the percentages. Just wanted to fit yeah. the disclaimer in. Player 2, 23.5%. Player 3, 21.75%. And player 4, 17.5%. Uh, which is kind of striking. Or well, what's most striking is that, you know, the expected win rate of everyone, you know, going to Commander Pod, you know, we talk about that a lot, is, is 25%. 
four player free for all sure 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 yeah there's only only player above 25 percent uh is player one just yep. absolutely eats the win rate from everyone else and like 10 percent above and in previous iterations of a uh, data collection like this for the metagame project and i think a couple of other sources it's actually been closer to 40 percent for player one so like a full 15 yeah. percent above the expected win rate basically twice as more likely to win than player four yeah insane yeah um cool also, yeah sorry another disclaimer oh. which is uh only in this survey only 0.6 percent are reported draws which if you think about like a tournament setting isn't necessarily as accurate when you oh factor true in, yeah uh, the a time limit very, so very in, in a tournament you'll actually see a bit more evening out of this since there are like more draws and player one loses win percentage versus like having a draw instead so yeah, but it feels like it would just decrease everyone's win percentage largely similarly, and just a more a higher percentage of it would be draws, right? Yeah. Um, Which would actually kind of amplify the advantage of going actually, first Actually, yeah, more it might, because if you're, yeah, if you're just winning <laughs> early, then yeah, never mind. Uh, cool, yeah, there's, there's more data if, if people want to look into this on uh, the metagame project, specifically about, like, turns that games end on um there's nice graphs on uh win rate on a given turn by the player there's some really really nice graphs that you can look at to kind of get some interesting perspectives on how the advantages of different seating positions uh develop over as the game progresses um so like a good you know i think we were, we were looking at some of the recent graphs uh you tend to see that you know player one and player two both have a, a kind of steep jump at the beginning um but then player two tends to kind of, you know, come in line with player three and four pretty quickly, while the advantage of player one seems to be uh, a lot more sustained. So just some, some very interesting stuff. If our listeners want to take a look at that, I yeah. recommend it. I'll, if I remember during editing, and you can yell at me if I don't, <laughs> uh, but I'll, I'll try to get some graphs in over the uh, YouTube overlay if you're watching on YouTube or listening on YouTube. Um, when Reed forgets people. him, you should just add him like twenty yeah, times. Just every, a bunch. Every, every time yeah. someone listens to this episode and he forgets, just just add him. Yep, they'll keep him yeah. busy for. There you go. <laughs> on like years. as many different <laughs> platforms and, and Discord servers as possible. Yeah, yeah, any random server, just just click on Reed's profile and just check mutual servers and just make <laughs> pick the one that you think that no one is gonna is <laughs> gonna will have added him on before. Yeah, uh, at Reed, uh, I'm not seeing the graphs on Podbean. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm now going to put all of them in the YouTube description or in the uh, podcast yeah. description. <laughs> Permalinks yeah. to all of them. <laughs> um, cool. So yeah, now with that kind of context established, uh, let's get into the you know nitty gritty of how turn order affects not just you know your win rate in CDH, but play patterns and kind of philosophies and mulligans and all of that. Yeah, because uh, that's, let, that's, uh, that's really where the interesting meat is for the. Uh... For the discussion here is in like how how does the how does the turn order and like the effective turn order on the game actually affect your play patterns inside of the game? Um, and I think as like sort of a disclaimer, we're we're gonna be talking about sort of the incentives that each uh like seat or each uh turn order um sort of like presents uh and that you have to take into account when doing mulligans and figuring out like what you're sort of doing on the especially the early turns of the game. Um, so the, the incentives are related to the win rate of each, uh, seat, but they're pretty independent of what the actual, like, results of that data are. So 
we we know going into this that player one has a very high win rate, but these incentives sort of exist outside of that win rate. They are related, but they're not like dependent on they're like they're not like derived from that win rate. It, it's derived from play patterns inside of the actual games themselves. Yeah, I think I think one thing you'll see is the I guess there is a bit of feedback loop because I mean we can talk about I mean just let's get let's talk about seat one and then I'll kind of carry on my point. Um, yeah. So read take it away. Sure. You wrote all this um, stuff. <laughs> uh, we we can get into I, I, this is just some some basic blocking for it, but um yeah so seat one is pretty much the easiest uh seat to understand the incentives for um because you don't really have to care about the rest of the table at all <laughs> in terms of. In terms of seat ordering, um, you definitely still have to carry about like you know the commanders, the strategies that you're assuming that other people at the table are gonna go for. What like if if you're playing a deck that hard loses to oof and like table or seat one, you can't just ignore the rest of the table. But you can sort of ignore a lot of the incentive structure around the different turns uh, or the different seat orders for the most part, um, because when you're in seat one, you just want to do the thing fast. <laughs> you want to. You're basically just looking for super explosive hands and you want to get power plays on uh, turn one because getting like doing like literally anything that your deck is designed to do basically on uh, the play on turn one or turn two is like exponentially more powerful than any other seat doing it because you get to do it before anybody else gets the chance to do it on that turn. Yeah, um, just knowing that there's a very low chance of disruption on your first turn like yeah. drastically improves. Yeah, yeah or the you, only thing you have to worry about is free like interaction. That. Yeah, but even and like, like I mean, if someone's <laughs> using free interaction on your first turn, you're probably doing something right, also. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and there's there's very limited amount of free interaction that can actually like let's say you have an opener of Crypt Ristic Study, which is fantastic, especially if you're going first. Yeah. You know, Mind Break Trap doesn't hit that. Uh, Misstep doesn't hit that. You're just looking at like Force of Will, Force of Negation, because no one's gonna yep. even have like Fierce online. Like can't it's, pack yeah. it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even even with free interaction, it's just there's very little that can but, actually. Uh, but stop even you. then, it's not even necessarily worrying about like other people having interaction for your stuff. Like also just being able to do stuff like turn one wheel on the play, right? Like wheel wheeling on the play is so much better than wheeling like in seat two or seat three, especially seat four. Absolutely, where yeah. Being able to like get all the stuff out of your hand and refresh for a seven before anybody gets to do anything. So there's no chance of like. The person before you dumping even more of their hand out before you can get a wheel off or um like getting like a null rod down in order for you to be like to make it like awkward so you can't even like do like weird dark ritual or like simian spirit guide stuff to get it uh going or it gets worse if you do do that so there are incentives here that aren't just like dodging interaction or dodging other people getting like proactive interaction down it's the fact that you get to do your thing before anybody else has a chance to do their thing and a lot of the time, doing a powerful thing will probably impact the other person. Turn one Rhystic Study impacts the entire rest of the table. Turn one Wheel in impacts the entire rest of the table. Turn one Stacks Piece impacts the entire rest of the table. You just, like, the fact that you get to do your thing before anybody can sort of work around it is where the real power comes from here. Though, yeah. I do, think, I do think it's important to say, though, that, like, you know, we're talking about, like, plays that might be considered turbo, right? Like, your Crypt Rhystic Study turn one. Oh, sure, Obviously, I'm, I'm that's fantastic like, on the play. But, yeah. like, yeah, I think it's important to, to, like, realize that even something like turn one land dork turn two Ristic study or something like that is a hand that's, like, still excellent on the play if, like, maybe a bit slow or sketchy. Or just, like, you know, when we say proactive, that's just whatever your deck 
whatever your next game plan is, you know, you should get some piece that enables that online. And it can be turn two, that's fine. Um, because, again, it's unlikely that you're dying on turn two. Like, maybe you have to adjust if, you know, someone goes like, okay, well, on my turn one, I'm going to play a land, a crypt, and a mana vault. Then you're like, okay, maybe I need to respect that, you know, there could be like a Nas coming next turn or something. But a lot of the time you can afford to just slam out your, uh, your, like, proactive pieces on your turn two. And then since you get your turn three first, which is where decks start being able to, like, consistently or semi-consistently win the game, um, you can be ready holding interaction even if you are you know, a control deck. Yeah, I mean, like, even outside of, like, doing quote-unquote proactive stuff, like, again, there, there's a bunch of backbreaking stuff that you can do on turn one, even if it's not turbo. Turn one deafening silence. Backbreaking for a large part of the format. Turn <laughs> turn one root yeah, maze. Oh backbreaking for literally yeah. the entire oh, format, right? It's, like, it's one of the nastiest <laughs> turn one openers, yeah. Um, when you said, yeah, Crypt Rhystic, the first thing I was thinking of is root maze, just yeah. absolutely stuffing that. Or even, like, getting down to turn one, like, if you have, like, land crypt rule of law, that's also hyper-destructive. Like, they're, they're, like, you just get to mess with, like, basically every deck's hand there, unless they explicitly kept, like, slower hands and play through rule of law really well. Like, there's just, again, it's yeah. not, it's not really about, like, what's coming out the other end of your turn one. It's just the fact that you get the chance to do it before anybody else can do their thing. Um, or, like, do their powerful thing. You know, like, the time is just worth so much. Is what we're yeah, getting. Just at. to bring it back to the data again, like more than fifty percent of games will end on turn six or before. So it's like just having one sixth of the game basically free uh, of interaction is is a lot. Yep. Well, even like a third of the game, honestly, like are people really going to be holding up mana on like after their turn one, right? Like maybe if you're playing some slow blue deck or kept a sketchy opener or something, but like there's I mean, the, still a very real chance that you just like have two full turns uh, sort of poem free. Well, I mean, we can, we can, we talk about this later on in the, with the seat positions, um, if you see like three and four, but uh, even then a lot of times you just can't sacrifice your turn two development, right? Which is yep. why you see a massive, uh, if you look at the graphs, which hopefully our viewers will be able to see, uh future read uh there's there there tends to be a massive gap in the um like uh, it's i guess most pronounced on on turn two and turn three for um player one and player two where just getting your turn three which is so typically turn one and two are your development turns turn three is where you know when people say cdh is a turn three format doesn't necessarily mean wins on turn three but you need to be able to stop someone from winning on turn three or be able to do something extremely proactive on turn three and if you know just by the nature of seeding if you're going first you get your turn three after everyone's had their turn twos with like just development um you're, you're just it's just so easy yeah um but yeah um, so yeah. like sort of like as a as a wrap-up point for this unless people have more stuff to talk about but the um the idea is that like seat seat one is again very it's the the incentives are very simple you just want to like do your thing basically um but from that seat one incentive that's where we derive all the incentives for the other seats uh, because sort of like everything rotates around like where you are in the game in relation to the person going first for the most part yeah which uh, brings well us to seat two Morgan, man, yeah. mm -hmm. sure, sure. I'll I'll uh, I'll do this one. So seat two, uh, sort of has 
they have like uh a couple options um you know depending on what the person in seat one has done if uh if if well first you know at the start of the game you can sort of think about what you're planning to do if you think that the person in seat one isn't going to have a super explosive hand like you're looking at you know uh a deck that doesn't have a lot of threat a fast mana like maybe it's a thrasios timna like mid-rangey deck or something like that uh or a stacks deck then you can also try and sort of be proactive and uh you know develop quickly and be a little bit more greedy particularly with your turn two um i would say against a deck like that you maybe don't want to be trying to win uh like on setting up for a turn three win is probably not great if you think they're either playing stacks or value engines into holding interactions starting on turn three yeah it's kind of a sketchy plan to to turbo a win on turn three but uh but you could certainly think like i can also be developing on turn two you know and not necessarily worry about dying when they untap on turn three if they are an explosive deck then you sort of have to consider uh keeping up the some sort of interaction for their turn three which means that your turn two is going to be restricted on mana so that means you're looking for either hands that get most of their development done on turn one or hands that um that like curve nicely into holding interaction on turn two like maybe you have you know a piece of some sort of acceleration on turn one even if it's something like a dork into something that's strong at two mana on turn two that would let you hold open a mana. So like that could be a, a Sylvan library or like a mana engine, like a bloom tender or something like that. Um, or even just another two mana rock um, that yeah, just I mean, lets you hold up, hold up some amount of mana while still developing hands like that are going to be pretty strong in seat two going after an explosive deck. A common uh, thing too if, is like with a TNT deck, right? Like it's the different, you know, when you have three mana on turn two, and you know the player, you you always want to use your mana pretty efficiently, right? But you know, it's just a subtle difference between casting Thrasios turn two or casting a Timna turn two off yeah. of your Dork, right? Just you know, the Thrasios there to hold up that mana to just at least you know, even if you're not holding up something, even just to signal that to other people to you know watch themselves. Uh, I I will interact if I have to. But even for stuff like Turbo, this could instead translate to, like, casting a Ranger Captain videos on turn two instead. Like, like yeah, putting a yeah. Rattlesnake down instead. Or, like, holding up, like, removal instead to try to cover for, like, a stacks piece that might be coming down. Where, like, maybe the roles are reversed, right? Like, you're, you're, you're actually the fast deck playing around a slow deck in seat one. And you need to, like, make sure that you're untapping with your full amount of mana. So you need to hold up mana for you, your removal spell on turn two instead to have, like, a full unlock turn three like that kind of stuff this it, it it all translates like it, it might not be direct translations but the concepts are still there for basically any strategy that you're going to be playing yeah another nice thing about seat two is um i think you're basically kind of like seat one worried most about seat four being the one interacting with you because if you just look at the priority order right seat one is most worried about seat four because c4 has last priority um but seat two um seat one has last priority so which you know if you've if you're already expecting seat one to be acting proactively then you're not necessarily worried about seat one being super interactive which i think is something to think about yeah i yeah, think definitely. one thing too you can kind of think about um i think i think it, it kind of 
goes, you know, and we've talked about how proactive you need to be. Um, but not just being, I mean, every every deck is going to be developing and trying to be proactive to some extent, even if you're respecting your opponents and um, trying to hold up interaction. But what to prioritize in terms of development is something that I think is, uh, we don't have like written down in our show notes, but, but could be worthwhile discussing, which is when, you know, let's say you have a Sylvan Library or a Bloom Tender, right? Where... Well, does your seating order um, or does your seat affect whether or not you're going to develop one over the other? Because I think so. Like, it, I tend to think that um, mana development is something I prioritize much higher uh, the later my seat position. Uh, yeah, I mean, it also yeah. like fully depends on like what type of deck you're playing in terms of explosiveness and like if you're actually looking to win off of like the cards. Like, if if I if I need to win the game ASAP. Um, I and I don't already have the win in hand. I'm probably incentivized to go for like in this is a scenario like a silver library to try to find it versus like mana that I can't guarantee is going to actually get to do anything. But yeah, I mean for the most part it makes sense that um if you already have the interaction and you want to be able to develop as well as sort of police the table if needed, uh it makes sense to like get the mana down early when you have a less like a lower chance of just dying and then like potentially have the upside of later on being able to hold up more mana. Or yeah, it's just if you're forced into the position of being responsible, you know, a lot of times it's you you want to you you have to you have to curve your or curb your own development to some extent in order to be responsible. Um and if you're, you know, I guess it depends on what kind of pieces you're tapping out for or whatever, but um or not tapping out for but but developing. But if you're you're developing mana, uh it, it does allow you to you know, hold up more mana in future turns while also still uh, engaging in your development. I mean, you know, turn one is generally always going to be in, you know, most decks is going to be some kind of mana development usually. Um, but I think turn two is where you can start to see kind of that variation between prioritizing mana versus cards or, you know, some engine piece. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anything else on seat two? Okay, then. C3. Matt, you do this one. Sure. So C3 has kind of similar set of choices to C2, um, but as you may infer, it is a little bit tougher um, to kind of come to the right conclusion. So first off, you can keep a proactive hand, um, but your proactive hand must be honestly to like a much higher bar um, than it typically would be because you're competing against one and two um, who are already kind of thinking about being proactive. Um, so this typically means that you kind of get stuck in the role of being the responsible seat. Um, yeah, but just, it doesn't have to be the responsible seat. Yeah. Just because the bar is higher. So like, you know, if you look at your hand and it doesn't quite meet that bar, then um, especially, you know, the further you go down on the mulligans, the more you're going to have to think about being uh, reactive. Yeah, so like in, in in like maybe maybe a turn two wheel is keepable for seat one, maybe it's keepable for seat two if seat one is a slower deck. But you yeah, like but it definitely. I, I don't think like a turn two wheel meets the bar almost at all for a seat three hand, um, for the most part. So like in instead of keeping that one and like having a proactive game, you're more likely to throw it away and instead end up with like a reactive hand or a slower hand that like wants to survive for a bit longer before doing its thing and slow everybody else down. Yeah, yeah, but I think one difference, though, it's not like a fully... If you end up becoming the responsible seat, I don't think you have to be fully reactive, and that's only because um, 
you can kind of rely on seat four being the one that has mana open for seat one's turn three. So like seat two, seat three's turn two is still basically dedicated to um, development, which is which is not bad. Yeah, yeah I think maybe, oh, maybe it makes sense to have this discussion a bit more when we're directly talking about uh, about seat four. But I do think there's. There's definitely some risk in the strategy of just assuming that uh, that seat four will will keep up uh, interaction. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, which I mean, you know, I I think it's not like a bad idea to like bundle the discussion of seat three and four together, actually, because like it's they yeah they sort of interact in a weird way. Um, in terms yeah, of like um, bluffing, like <laughs> bluffing how far you're willing to go to stay alive in the game, sort of, or like <laughs> I, I, was, I was gonna say, uh, the game, you know, the game doesn't start after Mulligan. Like, I mean, people will say the the game, the real game starts as soon as people reveal their commanders and you're shuffling up and resolving Mulligans and talking. That's yeah. when the game starts. <laughs> you start talking about, um, you know, like, uh, dude, I'm, I'm, we're we're all gonna keep responsible hands, right? Look at, you know, there's there's a turbo player going first. Um, and, and you, you try and kind of like assess, figure out where, where you think who's going to be responsible, how is, are we going to share responsibility, whatnot. Um, but yeah, and, and a lot of times, you know, if you're seat four, you can maybe try and it's not bully seat three, but you can be like, listen, I'm seat four. I'm at such a massive disadvantage. I am developing on my turn too. I'm not holding up any mana. So, you know, yeah, take that as you will. To be completely honest, like I'm not going to think about the one in 10 games where seat one wins on turn three or whatever especially as c4 i'll absolutely take that turn to develop and that's a risk <laughs> i just sort of hope take. yeah it's not even well like sure you could say hope but it's a reasonable yeah. percentage of games where that it doesn't matter yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean if you if you start behind and spend all your time slowing other people down then you're just gonna lose that's so such there's... a yeah yeah, I mean, I wanted to cover seat four because, you know, we we have it listed as potentially the greediest seat by far, which is something I, I just just resonates with me, you know? Uh, I, okay, I, let's I will... be clear. Whatever seat Lyndon is seat, sitting in is the greediest seat. But... <laughs> um, Especially if he's in seat four. <laughs> yeah, no, but, like, I, I will never, you know, I play a lot of decks. Sorry for the mic shake there uh, i play a lot of decks where i'm playing a turn two commander uh you know real Baral, you know a couple of my decks as well but in those decks uh i am basically gonna dedicate i'm, I'm like this is happening every time because if i'm especially if it's something like you know real or Baral, where the my commander is such a key uh, like turns on half my deck, uh, where otherwise if I don't have my commander, my cards are just terrible. Then I, I just can't afford not to cast my commander. So you know, I will uh, broadcast that early if I need to. Um, and you know, th this will also segue into something we're going to be talking about uh, after this. But uh, yeah, C three and four, very interesting kind of meta game between them. And then you know, maybe you can even collude a bit. You can be like, hey, you know. Player two, you're you're a responsible seat now. We're we we're behind. We need to develop you. You handle this. And there's there's uh and even, even a lot of politicking to be to be done. I, I I think honestly though, like even like even if you're not talking about direct like politicking or table talk in mulligans, um, there's still information to be derived here. Even if you're not like making the explicit thing of like, hey, I'm not interacting. I'm not interacting. Y'all go fuck yourselves. You hold up matter or you die. Um, there's still there, there's still information to be gleaned and percentage points to be had even if you're not having like that explicit discussion around um, like 
depending on like because again remember in tournament uh edh in tournament magic you do actually resolve mulligans in turn order which like you might not register as like a thing that matters that much um but when you're in seat four and you get to see everybody else's keeps or mulls before you um, you can actually, like, really shape, like, whether or not you think, uh, you can afford to be greedy or not, uh, based off of those hands. So, like, if you see seat one and seat two just snap keeping for sevens, and then seat three is mulliganing to six or whatever, like, maybe, maybe it's time to look for a bit of an interactive hand there, right? Like, maybe you can't really afford to be greedy. If seat one and seat two are, like, mulliganing, uh, first hand, and then they're mulliganing the second hand, and you have, like, a seat three keeping, like, a second seven... Yeah, that's that's doable. You you might be able to like get away with some greed there, right? If like everybody else in the pod is like C one, C two are looking for like hands that they're just not finding. C three like only kept like a begrudging second seven. Like there there's there's definitely space there to like work with, right? So you have to like pay attention to mulligans again. Also pay attention to what decks people are playing. Um, just like make sure that you're taking everything into account when deciding whether or not you actually think that you can afford to. Like, sort of maybe shirk your interactive role a bit um, and try to get out from under the C4 curse. I guess, yeah. yeah. That... W- one thing that, like, I think we should sort of be a little bit more explicit on than we have been, though, is that, like, you also need to be adjusting this while you're playing the game. Yes, right? like, that too. You're mulliganing to You're mulliganing to, like, a relatively aggressive hand in seat four. But, like, there are, you know, there are risks that you shouldn't take. Like, if player one is playing Cody, let's say, and they play Cody, and then everyone else taps out, and they don't have their commanders, so there's no Fierce Guardianships. If you have the interaction, like, you kind of are priced into holding it. With something, with a win like that explicitly demonstrated. You know, if they play a turn one Mana Vault, like, yeah, they could just have they could just have the Nas, and maybe you're dead. Like, maybe that's a risk that you're willing to take. But, you know, there are risks that are, you know, it was a calculated gamble, but boy, am I bad <laughs> at math. <laughs> yeah, well, one thing I'd, I like to look for in seat four specifically is either some very aggressive mana accelerant in terms of like Soul Ring or Mana Crypt to help catch you up in terms of like, you know, instead of being on your turn, on turn, you're on turn three on your turn one um, with the Crypt or a piece of free interaction. Like I I I I value free interaction very highly in seat four because you just want to be you're you're playing catch up. That's what we're trying to do. You're just trying to if you're not like if you want to just be aggressively developing, probably you know if people start or slow down their development on turn um three like after turn two like generally in in seat four I'm like I'm still trying to develop very aggressively um to just you know catch up and so free interaction helps a lot with that you can at least you know feel a bit more comfortable uh that you have some agency uh to stop your opponents and you're not just like it's on you guys it's on it's on you know seat two and three or it's on seat one and three to kind of answer the problematic people you you just you free interaction can also be uh you know revealed to opponents if you want sometimes to be like hey you know (laughs) don't go for this i've got this you know i'm sure other people have interaction uh you know just slow down and then you can uh you can get away with your uh, more aggressive development there yeah i think some of my most memorable games happen on in c4 honestly yeah 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 it's it's the i have a ton tons of fun in c4 
It's just, um, yeah, it's it's the seat where the, again, the incentives get the most complex because it all depends on what everybody else at the table is doing. Yeah. Dude, part of the reason why seat one is such a high winner is because it requires no brain power. <laughs> yeah. Un unironically, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just sort of put, put your stuff into play and hope that it works out. Yeah, it's a lot harder to make mistakes. Um, Especially in mulligans, yeah. And there's not many, there's not a lot of punishes. Yeah. Um, um, speaking of no brain power, though, in seat four, if I've got a turn one Sylvan library, I'm paying eight for like <laughs> as many turns as I can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be greedy. True. Um, cool. Is that it for incentives for this kind of category, yeah, or I, anything else? I think so. We can say? also we can refer back to these and sort of expand on them later. But like mm -hmm. that that that's just like giving like a base idea of like what the incentives are for each seat and like sort of like what what the decision making behind the decisions that actually get made are um when talking about turn order yeah um, cool well next up is how to alter your deck composition to mitigate seating uh so i kind of touched on this with um you know when i was talking about seat four and how i value free interaction i i mean i think free interaction you know you don't need to talk about it i mean force of will is great you know force of negation is great like there's there's lots hot, of hot takes yeah right <laughs> um but i guess i mean i mean force of negation there is there is some people who cut force of negation from extremely proactive decks that are trying to do things at sorcery speed um misdirection is one that we talk about a lot in our play group um and i think is probably quite underplayed in the broader cdh community mind break trap is one that i think you know we as a community slept on for a long time and now is really starting to pick up just the power of these free i guess i was gonna say disruptive but i mean you know what's the terminology that you're trying to get me on reed uh yeah disruptive versus uh it is like proactive or well disruptive uh yeah it's like wait what it is disruptive what? i just don't like i always use the disruptive half of the uh of the pair it's okay yeah it's i think it's yeah it's just proactive and disruptive okay okay so they're or, both they're, uh, i mean yeah the, no, these no, kind of counter spells it's are protective and disruptive are the protective and disruptive yeah. okay thank you yeah um yeah so these you know a, a larger focus on counter spells i mean in, misdirection can be very uh protective but uh and it's not as obviously disruptive but it still does help contribute in stack wars Right, so you, if you're, um, let's say you have a, a misdirection or something, you know, a common line will be, or like a verbal line would be, um, hey, listen, we're going into so-and-so's turn, uh, and you'd, you'd, if you're in seat four, you'd probably say this on seat three's turn. Um, you'd say something like, uh, we're going to so-and-so's turn, it looks like he's, he's potentially threatening a win, I can't stop him, but I can back you up. Something like that, right? Like, I don't have a counter spell I can stop this, but I might be able to back you up. Uh, you know, misdirection can help there, or mind break trap kind of can do it, do that on its own. So a big emphasis on uh, free interaction um, just allows you to, you know, develop sort of care in the world. Yeah, like um, we just have Dockside as a point here. <laughs> yeah, Dockside is definitely a point. I did want to tack on to the free interaction. Play though, red. Like, this is like. Part of the reason why um, I personally like running so much free interaction in, like, specifically stuff like Thrasthymna, um, or, like, even, like, Thrasvile, just, like, 
like slower decks, like slower than turbo decks or slower than um like Nas breach focus decks, is that like the having a bunch of free interaction in those decks like really really helps offset um ended up going like any up going into fourth seat, like when you have stuff like when you have all of like force of will force negation mind break trap uh like even like deadly rollick for early turns fierce guardianship mm -hmm. uh like force of vigor even um like it's and then like running the rest of your interaction suite super close to the ground gives you like a lot more equity in those games where you're where you're in fourth seed where like maybe you can't ever afford to actually hold up a mana drain going last but you can almost certainly afford to hold up like a dispel if absolutely required right like especially if you have like something like a thrasius in the command zone um it's like the the leanness of your interaction speed ends up mattering a lot more the like closer to the end of the table you are just because like if you need to hold it up you want it to be as like as least disruptive to your proactive game plan as possible uh, for you to do so but yeah uh, uh, i mean even with lean counter spells too you know there there is something to be said about trying to combo and you want to be have man efficient counter spells to help protect your combo. Oh yeah, I mean that, that's, that's how do you how do you do it, that? Right. How do you do that? How do you counter that? Well, I mean, if you're casting a you know actual factual counter spell uh, when your opponent has miscast and dispel, like it, it's it's harder to combat their proactive plan um, with your single piece of interaction because you're gated on mana in the early turns. Whereas if you have you know your own miscast, dispel, offer, swan song, like all of these cheap piece of interaction uh you can sometimes represent two pieces of interaction which is another card they need to have in hand not just you know extra mana um which is the inherent advantage they're going to have um when they're seated ahead of you um yeah i mean dockside on this on this list is feels like it's a fake but it's <laughs> it's not like... right like there's 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 it, it's it's a super real thing is that like but what deck is deck... altering their deck composition to run no, dockside no, 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 no. so like I'm everyone's not, running dockside I'm, already i'm not i'm not i'm not saying that you're <sighs> really altering deck composition necessarily but it's dockside is like the key card in consideration a lot of the time for when we're talking about when you're choosing to play red or when you're choosing not to play red yeah, choosing if you feel like you're playing not playing first three <laughs> three quarters of the time you should play red yeah, like, but seriously, <laughs> like, if you, like, there's, there's a very real thing where, um, at this point in the game, if you are a proactive deck, um, and you, you're really looking to mitigate turn order and make sure that you have chances at a lot of games, red is a super key color right now. You, like, having access to Dockside is super important if you are a fast deck that, like, like, yes, obviously Dockside, super, still very good going first. Um, but the idea is that, like, it, it is a catch-up mechanic. Like, the fact that you have this massive ritual that you can tutor for that is actually, a lot of the time, better going in seat four than it is going in seat one on any given turn means that, like, it, it just gives you a lot more power to be able to force through or, like, potentially be greedy uh, in those turns or even, like, not be greedy. I mean, like, you know, always like, Dockside to put down interactive pieces. Like, that's just something that you can do in a lot of these decks. Um, but, like, the idea of, like, having having like making considerations for having access to dockside in your decks if you and like having consistent access to it so like maybe you're playing like a green dockside deck instead if you want to accommodate for that which is like honestly i think a large part of why like team or slow decks are sort of gaining ground right now because the fact that you have stuff like dockside to catch you up from a bad position in seat four while still being able to do interactive things is super important 
Yeah, I mean, I'll burn, I'll burn a dog side in Riel on turn two if it gives me, if it even sometimes even just rich rolls me for one. Yeah, exactly. So that I can, uh, so that I can hold up an extra mana. You know, like that's that's sometimes just what you need to do. Yeah. Um, cool. And then uh, we have slower decks. Uh, I mean, I didn't write this. I'll, I'll, I'll read. Was this you? Yeah, I mean, so this is like... Well, uh, yeah, let you explain this here. It's another trade-off thing here where, um, for slower decks, like, they're actually a large number. And, like, I'm, I'm talking about, like, specifically, I think, like, a bunch of stack decks here, um, where uh, there are a lot of cards seeing play in stack decks right now that are really good cards, but you have to be super aware of what they, like, how they change depending on where you're in seating. Um, a lot of these things are stuff like, again, we mentioned earlier, like, Root Maze, Deafening Silence. Uh, I also include stuff like Chalice of the Void here. Um, like, any, like a lot of the stuff, like Lavinia's um, uh, early Sanctum Prelate, although it usually doesn't come down early enough to come down on zero and actually like stop people from casting uh, their rocks and stuff. Um, but there are a lot of these like super, super high roll um, stacks pieces that are incredibly good when you're going first or second. Um, but lose a lot of equity once you get later in the table when, um, like, again, stuff like Root Maze, Deafening Silence, Chalice of the Void, super good at stopping people um, from casting, like, their mana crypts and fast mana on turn one to, to slow down the rest of the table. But if you're in seat four, you're going to see all the mana crypts before it gets to your turn. Um, so you sort of have to, like, change your thinking a bit of, like, it's fine to play these cards, but you have to be very aware that, like, you might just have to throw them away if you're, like, in seat four and you're looking for keepable hands. Like, you might have to look for better. Um, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't think Deafening Silence falls into that category, and I think Root Mace it, falls it, into that less. It definitely, but I, it I definitely, definitely think Chalice, less, but... people who run Chalice of the Void expecting to play it on zero, um, I, I think that's a card where I I think it's so, as, as Reed's pointing out, it's just so impacted by um, your seating that it's honestly unless you're gonna be unless you can play chalice on one um i i really don't like chalice um yeah, but like but, on, on turn one it's and if you're going first it's great to play on zero but yeah just in so many other positions playing on zero or drawing into the mid or late game on zero it's just so weak that but uh, so yeah, i'm not a fan of that type of card but so the swap uh, outs for this <laughs> sorry you go yeah just like so like what the swaps would be for this kind of stuff or not necessarily swaps but like considerations for like if you're if you're not just looking to be like a high roll stack stack and like try to get people out of the game as soon as possible, um, you you can always look into like more um like things that uh impact the board uh even if they come down after like fast mana pieces or after proactive pieces right so like this is stuff like again collector roofs like maybe you want to play more null rods instead of the chalice of the void because you want to be able to mm -hmm. catch fast yep. mana even 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 after it comes down you want to be able to shut it off meltdown great card like that. Doesn't work when you're in seat one, but if you want to be hedging against seat four, meltdown super reasonable because then you actually yep. do catch all of the risk studies. Like you might not catch the plays off of them, but they don't have that mana anymore. You can you can shut them off of that. Um, it just stuff that like affects the board, um, or like even like affects mana development, uh, even if it's all been developed before you can get the stacks pieces down. So this is just all considerations that you have to make, like when you're going into deck building and thinking about, okay. Am I am I willing to take mulligans based on these cards to have the more explosive turn ones? Do I need the more explosive turn one or like seat one, seat twos? Can I afford to sacrifice some of the game of my seat three, seat four games in order to have those like explosive high rolls? If not, maybe maybe you need to tinker around with like removing some of those, adding in more null rods, adding in like all that kind of stuff, right? 
I think one thing you kind of keyed in with uh, these particular stacks pieces that I think is something I was just thinking about that I kind of want to point out um, is that the stacks pieces, the, the their role they're going to fulfill is going to change. Not all stacks pieces, but you know these particular stacks pieces is going to change depending on um, your seating. Where they, you know, Deafening Silence has the option to really inhibit development. Like Root Maze very clearly inhibits development. Um, but you're not running those cards purely for that purpose, right? You also run them, like most other stacks pieces, um, as something that's going to make it hard to win or to advance their kind of primary game plan through. But even still, you know, you should consider the fact that, like, huh, you know, like, definitely sounds, well, it, it's going to make it hard for Nostex to win. Um, if I'm going, if I'm seated early, like, I might prioritize that. I might value that a lot higher um, than I would normally because it, it does inhibit development so significantly. Um, and yeah, just I think most stacks effects don't have that option necessarily, right? Like a lot of them are, are more making it difficult for your opponents to win in the, I guess, post-development phase. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Matt, you had something that you want to get at here? Oh, I was just going to say, uh, I just would never want to be the player one casting a chalice on their first turn like i feel like <laughs> i feel like you're taking your percentage win and you're just flattening it like you're just saying <laughs> we're going late where our ultimately you know the win rate evens out it just seems like such a weird play well so it so this is this is why i think like the stats here are sort of misleading is that like yes the aggregate stats are that the win rate evens out but you you do have to take into account the decks that you're playing right like you, there's a very real chance you're playing a deck that will absolutely win the game if it goes past turn six. Like, you just, you have, a, like, a value engine or you have engines that are just, like, basically, like, undealable with the rest of the table. They're not going to be able to interact with you sufficiently or, like, they're just not going to be able to deal with the engines that you're putting in play. And all you have to do is to make it to those turns with, like, land drops, some natural land drops, get some pieces into play and stuff like that. So in those types of decks, like, absolutely. I, I, I would absolutely want to be putting down a chalice on zero. If you can, like, if... If your win con is I need to get to turn six and that's and then I just like absolutely win the game, then a chalice on zero on turn one is like gonna be better than crypt a lot of the time, right? I don't yeah. know if it's better than crypt. That's a pretty aggressive statement, but <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't say well, better. First than crypt. you play the crypt yeah, but... and then you play the chalice. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> but uh, also, yeah, the same like sort of philosophy is... as uh, as like turn one wheels, right? Like you get to yeah. dump all of your fast mana and then. Uh, do the thing that that's advantageous for you except in this case you're doing something that's disadvantageous for your opponents like you get to play all of your zero drops then drop chalice down um whereas your opponents are just like you might have just ripped a couple cards out of their hands you know and maybe their hand was you know predicated is like their keep was super based on the fact that a crypt or chrome mox or something and now it's just gone yeah i also def i definitely wouldn't hate like uh, just just playing a chalice on zero kind of sucks but like yeah if i if i had like land chrome mox two mana rock chalice on zero like yeah that that feels great right i'm untapping with three mana four if i hit my land drop and no one else can have like the super fast mana so they're either like maybe someone has a soul ring but if there's no soul ring then like then it's dorks or whatever um but yeah like obviously just just yeah, chalice pass is a is a pretty under underwhelming line. I'd I'd agree. Um, yeah, also just don't run chalice yeah. if you're going to be playing it on zero. Like I said before, <laughs> chalice on one, ab 
that that card that, that that's Excellent. you know yeah. gangbusters any time you play it. on zero anyways right yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> so one sided chalice on zero there you go um even better than that cool uh so that's is there any other thing that you would alter your deck i mean because the thing is a lot of things that help um mitigate your seating in deck composition are things that you kind of want to be doing anyway like you know i, I guess a fantastic example of this is gemstone caverns right like most decks are going to run gemstone caverns just because it's going to accelerate you by a mana 75 percent of the time right if you see it in your opener so you you that's something you're, you're going to be running anyway even like <laughs> Even though that is something that's like, oh yeah, you're. It's very much a card that's templated to be like, yeah, this is helping address uh, turn order, but yeah, like it's just good enough to be running anyway. And I feel like a lot of things fall into that category. Um, only, only a few things like yeah, free interaction, misdirections, mind break traps that you might not have otherwise wanted to run. Um, you might actually like deliberately include. Mm, yeah. Cool. Oh, cool. Um, we can cap off this uh, topic with one that we, we we were kind of discussing this. I think at Punt City. Um, uh, yeah, and, and I mean, there's definitely been like I, we've had discussions about this before. This has been sort of an ongoing thing in the community. Like, yeah, even before we had data on this, everybody's always at least had like an inkling that like, yeah, seat one is pretty busted in terms of like. You get a lot more out of being seat one than you do out of like even like seat two. Yeah. So, like so the, else, the so. subtopic here is rules to mitigate, um, like like augmenting the rules to mitigate um seating advantage. So that whether that's like in tournaments, and I know some people have discussed this at like you know the RC should change or 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 uh, Watsy should change the way multiplayer rules are. Um, and you know I, the the one first common one is like. I mean, in 1v1, the player on the play does not draw a card. Yeah. They do in four in sort of some, some balancing yeah. there that we don't really get here. Yeah. I kind of so, do appreciate that decision, though. Like, at least, like, when the rules were originally drafted, they weren't just, make, like, assuming that multiplayer would function similarly to, similarly to 1v1. Yeah, definitely. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, there is... An... There, there should be some sort of natural buffer, which it's kind of interesting that we don't see it as much, or like that that the advantage is still so pronounced because you know, one thing you know, I don't think we any of us on the podcast would say Cody is a weak deck. Um, it's we're all we'd all be in agreement that it's really strong, but it might not be a great tournament deck right now because people know what's up and they are giving it an appropriate amount of respect, which oftentimes means like a three v one for certain portions of the game. Um, especially in the like you know mulligan and, and early turns, and that is that does act as kind of a natural buffer to um, to to decks that are performing really well, and it, it could be the same same could be argued for seeding, right? Like if everyone if player two, three, and four just decided that player one wasn't going to win the game, um, that could be that could happen very easily, right? It's only the fact that everyone else it's free for all, so like you you are in some senses teammates. Or in in some sense, a, t a teammate with player one, um, depending on who's the threat. But um, it it is kind of interesting that you know it's not the, the advantage of seat one isn't um, reduced further because of that kind of natural buffer. So I, I can see why they wouldn't want to uh, augment the rules. But um, yeah, that's definitely not how it's been playing out <laughs> yeah. based on the data we have. Um, but yeah, some I guess some proposals are like. First player doesn't draw, 
but then you know you just end up with like similar issues with like yeah like turn one like seat one still gets like priority for winning the game but then like c2 gains way too much equity over the mid and long game yeah, yeah and then just, yeah, like, to, yep, just to kind of state some like um some i don't want to use the word incentives but like it's not that we that each player having different decision paths is a problem it's it's the win rates so like if you can modify the rules with for example first turn bonuses that result in even win rates but each player still has a different kind of unique set of thinking like i think that's still okay oh yeah yeah no, i think i think, I think everyone great. having their own kind of unique uh, the, the fact that there's roles change based on seating i think is a positive not a, a negative yeah um so like if the third player gets a treasure token on their first turn like that if that ends up resulting in the win rates evening out but you know that of course that drastically changes how you might think about playing your third turn so i, I think that those types of rules are actually pretty cool yeah, no, there, yeah, there's some yeah interesting propositions like yeah not drawing and then someone taking their turn as usual or someone like getting a scry making a although we we've talked about uh if it was like a treasure or some kind of like uh, the equivalent of the coin in Hearthstone, <laughs> in Hearthstone yeah yeah like one of the, the biggest problems with the coin in Hearthstone is that it's a spell um yeah, yeah. okay it, 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 it interacts with a bunch of other things yeah so end, like treasures would be a bit awkward like maybe um some kind it, of emblem it has to be something. an emblem yeah. yeah yeah with like an with like a activated ability um or just like oh. a carpet thing where like at the beginning of your first main phase you make a mana and that's it and you get an emblem that gives you a ticket counter and you get to spend thinking... the ticket counter to get a sticker <laughs> get a and that sticker. sticker when you apply it gives oh, you a... yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, as long as I, I can say crack it. Like, I think four like times, I'm eternal legal by the like way. Like a yeah. chancellor of a tangle or something with like maybe colored mana instead is actually the option. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, honestly, like, yeah. maybe you can't like subsidize. Like maybe you're not allowed to subsidize player three in terms of like giving them colored mana because then you end up with like weird like okay just like I I play like landless like I keep like a landless hand just because I get colored mana but like maybe colorless mana is still good enough. Honestly, my thinking is that you should get the mana not on your turn. Like, uh, oh, I don't necessarily know that having the super explode, like giving people more opportunities for a very explosive turn one in later seats is yeah. like, the way to go about it. It's more like they need you, to be able to develop, mm -hmm. but still hold, you know, some form of interaction. Like, every like that's such a very CDH specific solution, though. <laughs> like, if oh, you're trying to abstract sure. that to casual, it's like that just doesn't do anything for decks that aren't running instants. Or, that'd be, uh, yeah, but like that'd CDH, be super... oh, yeah, you're expected to be running some kind of one mana instant interaction, then yeah, easy. Okay, I think that, okay, to summarize all this, I think it's hard to come up with first turn bonuses without having tons of data to back up how effective they are. And, yes. I mean, no one's running those types of experiments because, I mean, I feel like they're pretty fruitless. So it, there definitely are other, I think, better potential rules that we can add, and we have points to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, think a, oh, the the like the most obvious one for me was, um, I mean, honestly, I think CDH tournaments just shouldn't have a free mulligan, but at the very least, player one could not get a free mulligan. Yeah. Taxing um, mulligan, yeah, I, I don't know if I'd do that for everyone, but maybe, yeah, I think I think taxing mulligans could be could be a viable increment for. Uh... Well, I, like I just think I think that like the I 
I forget what the term is for the current mulligan. Is it the London mulligan that we have? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the London mulligan. London, yeah. Is like far and away the strongest mulligan we've had. Uh, I don't know. Maybe partial Paris was, was better. When... But partial Paris was like they, there was never a free partial Paris because that yeah. would have been just absolutely wild. <laughs> just <not> um, okay. <laughs> but like, but yeah, like I, I think that it's people are building their decks with the expectation that they can easily mulligan to like five or four to see, you know, 35 cards to find just a stupidly explosive opener. And I, I think that's generally not super healthy. It's also um, not healthy. The fact that mulligans eat up a significant portion of, uh, of yes. round timers. Yeah. So I think like not only would eliminating the free mulligan just mean there's fewer mulligans on average, it would also mean people, build their decks to mulligan less yeah but that's that's kind of there there's a kind of philosophical thing about whether or not you want tournament like if, if tournament edh should or tournament cdh or tournament edh whatever should actually reflect the cdh that most people are playing or if it should be its own kind of entity i mean it's already kind of being forced into its own entity by adding round timers where you're cutting off you know a bunch of decks that are trying to win you know i mean I, I think all CDA should be played without a free mulligan. I I get like it. It's just a it's a problem in like how do you implement that without like making it you know then there is like kind of a clear delineation between regular EDH and CDH and you know as as your decks get like higher and higher power when do you switch to playing with no free mulligan or whatever like it's it's an awkward thing to implement. Yeah, uh, I mean, there I, there I is agree. a there is an opportunity to kind of because I mean one of the things we that that's the issue with kind of adding additional rules or augmenting the rules um, is the concept of like splitting the format or whatever that that people are very you know re like rightfully concerned about, um, but in a sense tournament EDH and and how it's kind of progressing does give an opportunity to explore some of these rule sets because by introducing a round timer you're already changing the rules so you know you maybe want it to reflect you you, you have more liberty to to augment the rules and, and play mess around you know changing mulligans how many mulligans you get um you know adjusting the uh the draws to actually try and balance things more because i think in, in a tournament setting people care a lot more about balance than they do necessarily about reflecting exactly the kind of casual cdh that most people are playing so yeah i mean i could i can see that happening where you know i i could get behind cdh in general probably shouldn't have a free mulligan um but i also don't think it would necessarily be a problem to actually implement that in a tournament yeah we also have some other points for ways you can mitigate uh yeah seating in tournaments so i i definitely wanted to say before like we get too far into this that um there i i think the metric that we should be evaluating this on. I mean, obviously, like, it's it's super hard to actually evaluate any of these without data or whatever. Um, but uh, the, I, like, the... I think the general thing that we need to be evaluating this type of stuff on, like, going into the future for the most part is not really, like, strictly taking, like, taking percentage points away from seat one, but more realistically, like... We we want to balance out the win rate for all the seats, but like what I actually think that means in practice is you sort of want to like take percentage points from seat one and give them to seat four is really the biggest issue here. 
I mean, um, I think you want to split them. The thing is, you don't just want to give them to seat four no, because no, but, as we but talked I'm, about the early. I, I'm saying like like seat seat two and seat three are like relatively close to the 25 percent mark already. Like they're like floating around like 22 percent, 21 percent. So you need to give them like a bit to get up to like the average. Uh, but like the huge it's, difference, it's not is an like, equal distribution. Yeah it's, yeah, it's not an equal distribution. Like seat four is yeah. losing out on a disproportionate amount of the percentage points that like seat one is gaining. Um, so like the the super basic, um, like the super basic way that like you would want to balance it is to like move like a lot of those percentage points from seat one to seat four to get like a rough balance, and then like you can you can smooth out the edges with like, that's that's just socialism yeah. okay you know i don't know if i can <laughs> yes chad hashtag occupy seat one we are um, the 75 percent yeah <laughs> no morgan it's, it's it's uh it's 60 something percent is it not no 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 50 Whatever. I just meant of players. Yeah, of players. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. No. It's twenty five percent of the players are hoarding forty percent of the wins. <laughs> <laughs> There's a problem. Uh, but yeah, get anyway. Getting getting into like sort of the alternative, some of the alternative tournament rules. Um, yeah. So we, like we've we've sort of discussed some of this. I guess I'll let like Lyndon. I think this is yours. This this, this yeah. one's mine. Yeah. yeah. Um, where so I at Punt City I had um. Like, I, I normally have, I'd say, slightly below average seat luck, or, like, in the tournaments I've played. Like, I've gone third and fourth a, a fair bit. I was, like, that way at Tier 1 last year. But uh, at Punt City, I and I'm honestly so sad because I used up all my luck in one go. Uh, my seating was uh, third, first, 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 uh, first, second. Second, yeah. Yeah. Um I one of those was a was unfortunately a uh, game loss due to um running snow basics instead of regular basics. Uh or running uh, swap that. Running regular basics instead of my list that had snow basics. Oh, so, so I got a I got a game loss for that which was which was a bummer, but uh you know, my own fault. But anyway, I I I I had absolutely ridiculous seat luck and I was like yeah, this is and and here's the other thing too is like at, at least um maybe I'm just I suck at dice rolling because every time I'm rolling dice to determine seat order I get uh you know probably below average seat luck but when it's when it's RNG from the the tournament organizers you know I get blessed. <laughs> <He's just terrible. laughs> yeah. And I think I I did some math. I forget which one was which between tier 1 con and uh and um Punt City, but between the two tournaments in the 11 regular rounds I played I went fourth five times, uh, third four times, or sorry, third three times, tw second twice, and first once. So, like, my average seat was, like, 3.2, um, yeah. which is just on the opposite end of that, and that's uh, very much a mountain to climb. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I was, like, I was just thinking, I was like, man, this is, I've got such a massive advantage over everyone, and... um. I think we everyone wants tournaments to be reflective of the skills of players, um, which and it's kind of interesting that we see uh, familiar faces in top sixteens like fairly consistently, um, just because it, there is you know in order to make top sixteen in a lot of tournaments you need to have um, better than fifty percent win rate in terms of you know the points of what you need to win maybe like fifty percent of your games and then like draw one or something like you need you need to be well above your expected win rate um and and a lot of times you know 
the people who you're seeing in top 16, some of them get bad seat luck, some of them get good seat luck. So it it, it, it is a, a big skill thing. But you that's what you want in tournaments, right? You want the tournaments to be reflective of the skills of the player um, for the results and not just them getting lucky. So I'd consider, you know, what if you had uh, breakers slash points affected by your seat position? So like you might get less points for a win um, if you're going first um, as opposed to going fourth, et cetera. Or yeah, it could I'd, just be yeah. breakers, yeah. I'd also add in, as tournaments have started switching away from random no-repeat to, like, Swiss no-repeat, I think this, this issue is actually getting so much worse, because, um, particularly now, when, you know, when you get paired with people with a similar record, that means winning early is massively important for your breakers, um... So, so if you don't have some as, sort of as, mitigation as in, on that, sorry, just to be clear, like winning earlier in the tournament, like winning, yeah, in the winning, winning rounds. in like a yeah. win in round one yeah. essentially means that versus say a win in round four means that for three rounds, all of your opponents have an extra win going into that round, which is pretty massive for your tiebreakers, yeah. and. If if going first in round one gives you a forty percent win rate, then that's like a fifteen percent bonus to having excellent breakers. Um, and I think that like that that's a problem. That's also it can't just be mitigated by like raw average seat position because yeah. again, it shifts that. Like, if winning earlier in the tournament is better, then that's still an advantage. Whereas with a random, it kind of all shakes out in the end. Um, where as long as everyone is compensated for their average seat position, either by getting to go earlier in later rounds if they went later in earlier rounds, or they get points or tiebreakers or something, um, if you just going first in round one instead of round six uh, is a big advantage. I once played in a tournament where I won only a single match, um, which was match one. And I mean, this was before, this was like fairly early-ish in tournaments. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I won my first match and then we kept repeatedly getting paired against the same, not it wasn't exactly the same pod, but it was like very people from, from the same pod just kept facing each other and our breakers just kept getting pushed all, all the way up. So even though I didn't make top 16 or day two, um, and I basically had only one win. I mean, maybe I had, might have had a draw or something. Um, I prized enough to get a demonic tutor, a revised demonic tutor, just because it like absolutely borked my breakers that I won the first match and then got paired against yeah. a bunch of other people. Like, because you also so had, a, I think you had a draw too, right? You had like a win and a draw. Yeah, yeah. And then you were in the a bracket with like a bunch of people who had a win and a draw who kept like having their breakers dragged up. So you wound up with like a 40% opponent match win rate yeah. when like, when like the next, the people around you had like 25% and it was like, uh, I think the system might be a little wonky. Yeah, no. And, and, and normally I, I always find that even when I do like top 16 in tournaments and stuff like that, it's I, for whatever reason, I always just seem to lose round one and then it is an uphill battle and you're like, well, I know my breakers are ass. So like, I, <laughs> I guess I need to, to play really, uh, really well here. Um, yeah, no, it, it's something needs to be done, I think, in uh, in the way we structure our tournaments to kind of address that. Yeah, and these are all, um, for the record, like, this one and the next point um, that we're going to get into are sort of, like, meta solutions for this problem in terms of, like, they're, they're solutions in a tournament setting for 
the problems spread over like spread out over the course of multiple rounds but aren't really the solution for like the win percentage inside of a specific game um the the solving for like disparate win percentages inside of like games themselves is sort of like a much harder problem to actually solve cleanly yeah i mean like the the thing we just talked about with uh seed, seed position affecting breakers slash points you're trying to preserve the randomness of seeding but trying to address that random factor by correcting with by correction of the points yeah uh, the next point we have here is um everyone in a tournament you know let's say it's six rounds is guaranteed to go first second third fourth and then you know either second and third or um first and fourth something like that right where it's supposed to kind of balance out the um the the effect of turn horizon game by you're removing the randomness so everyone's guaranteed to kind of go the same positions um so then it should even the playing field in theory as long as you're not doing swiss pairings yeah um one thing with this i i think this this kind of solution is a lot easier to implement than adjusting points based off or points or breakers based off seat position because kind of tweaking that, like what's the correct amount of points to award or, or remove uh, based on seed position is a lot harder to fine tune than simply removing the kind of randomness factor completely. Yeah, although it, it only, I think it only really works if you're not doing Swiss, because otherwise like you're very likely to just wind up, or if you just have a ton of players, because I think not playing the same opponent twice is probably more important than than like the the seating mm. or like if that's given priority then you might wind up at a point where you know all of your winners have you know played certain against each other or not all of them but you know there's enough cr like overlap that it's relatively difficult to pair them and then you're just stuck pairing people who you can't give them a fair uh a fair turn order distribution because you know, they've both gone second twice and, like, one of them has to go second because that's just the way it works out or, or whatever. Yeah, I yeah. also don't think guaranteeing seats, like, scales down well because realistically, like, you know, in an ideal world, the most amount of tournaments happen at the LGS with a handful of people where you're only running three rounds or two rounds and then a, and then yeah, it's a usually well, pod. LGS tournaments, from what I've heard a lot of times, it's just, like, people do a, like a top 16 and then immediately cut, cut to finals is so like, I mean, it's hard to kind of guarantee that sort of thing um, or structure it that way in an LGS tournament. Cause a lot, but, I know it's like if they're running it for F and M sort of thing, like which some, or like every other week or something, you know, some LGSs do that. It's, it is often just a, only a couple rounds, not like a massive tournament. Yeah, or like, I mean, but breakers such points affected by seat position definitely is applicable for, for smaller events. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our last point here, our, our potential solution is uh, the wildest one, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is, I think, this is a, an interesting concept tournament to run, and less of a, like a legitimate practical solution, um, just to kind of see what happens. Because here we're augmenting basically the rules of the game. The previous one we were augmenting um, tournament structure and just removing the randomness. Previously, we were trying to account for the randomness, and now it's just like, pff, dude, all, all bets are off. Uh, so this one is life betting slash points betting. 
um, for seat position. Yeah. So, so I think we actually might a couple have different talked, models for this too. We might have talked yeah. about points betting on the tournament episode with joking most recently. Um, no, I think we talked about life betting. Oh, uh, did we talk about but, life betting? Okay, because points betting is also a thing that you can do here, though. <laughs> um, where the idea is like before any given game, um, everybody sort of puts in a bet of how many life points or how many like tournament points they're willing to bet to go first or just like a, a straight up bet like i'll, I'll subtract like this amount almost, from my yeah. life total i'll subtract this amount from my current tournament points and then whoever quote-unquote bet the the highest ends up going first and then you order the rest of the pod based on uh, what their bets were so if you get like five points per win in a tournament you'd be like i'm willing to bet like four of my points in order to try to get this win because like i i really need the additional breakers plus like the additional like one point or whatever or like in life betting like it would be like okay well i'm not on nas and i'm actually like this stack stack that is pretty good at protecting its life total so i'm gonna bet like 20 life points and i'm gonna start the game at 20 but i'm gonna go first and i feel like i feel like that's that, that al like alters the the huge, game like yeah. hugely perverse but, but, incentives. But there, but there is there is like some interesting stuff there, right? Like it 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 definitely changes how you have to build decks for tournaments, etc. And obviously, yeah. like the the I think the the actual factual issue here is that like it's just so much. It makes tournaments run for so much longer because you have to get all the light betting out of the way before like getting into mulligans. And well, you have to, like, I don't shuffle. think it's that hard. Well, so no, my. You have to like you life could... bet and then determine where you're actually sitting and then get everybody to sit down. So you like, no, just... well, what 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 you could do is you could just collect everyone's bet at the start of the tournament. Yeah, Which is... and then oh, and then you just say like yeah. here, like you post the pod, like here's the pod, here's the starting. I think with with this, you'd also have to bet. You'd have to have separate bets for like second, third, and fourth. Um, and then yeah, you could just have your like everyone be like. Okay, I'm willing to bet ten life to go first, and seven life to go second, and three life to go third. Say, and then it just runs it like, okay, who has the highest first bet? They're going first. They lose twelve life, and then it, you just have a pod that's like the player going first is this. They start at twenty eight life. The player going second is this. They start at thirty five or wh whatever the the numbers work out to. But I think like it sounds nice now when like Nas is the bugbear of the format but it would have sucked a lot for example when flash hulk was dominant yeah like it would have been yeah. absolutely toxic of like these thrasios timidex betting on like okay well i'm willing to go to 12 to go first <laughs> like uh, like 12 dude i'd bet like 36 life yeah, like you have well, like, no, no, no life tax in your mana base, just like off of Sylvan Library, you're just going to six every game. <laughs> I feel like you need you need the life to pay for to to play a shock into a vamp or an imperial seal, so you can go to five. That's yeah. the <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like life betting is the most drastic because it, I mean, first turn bonuses and and how we discussed that is like that that does affect the game and can affect um. I mean, it, it it can affect deck construction, but honestly, a lot less so because you just you're not guaranteed to know what first turn bonus you're gonna get. Um, whereas with life betting, it's like you you can alter your deck to be like, well, I'm gonna have to bet a lot. I I can bet a lot of life I can afford to, and so I can build my deck with that kind of prior knowledge in in, in place. Like you're betting so much life that maybe you're not even gonna run gemstone caverns anymore, and all of a sudden your decks start to look like a completely separate format. Um, with points betting. 
and and we've kind of discussed like there's different ways to do points betting like you can wager points and then you win the pot or something like that and and uh, pots are fed with um points by the tournament like you know let's say four points ahead for the game and then you know each player can bet a certain amount of points into the pool to determine seating um but then that has problems with like you know as morgan pointed out i think, I think pre-show like just some goofball deciding to yolo all in and then you know someone wins that pod and now they're just miles ahead of everyone else so it's like weird kind of pseudo king making but for the entire tournament um or you could do it like you know just your points get thrown into an incinerator right like you sacrifice a certain portion of your uh points that you've accumulated or maybe you can go negative and then you uh yeah no you, I, you I, I think i, I go first the, the way i would do it is you act it's only you sacrifice the points that you would get if you win I don't think I would, like, mess with your existing point totals. I would just be like, uh, I'm willing to, you know, let's say a win is worth 10 points, because you'd have to increase it to add granularity. If oh, a yeah, win's yeah, worth, yeah. like, 3 points, then there's not a lot of options. So you say, like, okay, uh, I'm willing to bet 4 points to, like, go first, and so if I win this pod, I only get 6 points instead of the full 10. Yeah. Um, would, would be, like, how I would... Uh, I would implement that. Um, yeah, that, that's reasonable. And yeah, so this 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 thing is more about um, metagame, not not altering the decks, but kind of altering. It's gamifying the tournament even more, which some people have issues with. Like, <laughs> I, I feel like IDs, uh, intentional draws, are already kind of along that axis, right? Of like, you're you're playing the metagame of the tournament itself and less actual magic, um, and points kind of definitely adds to it. But it is also interesting that it adds a. Um, I think it adds more skill to it, right? Where the people who uh, probably winning are going to be top sixteen, top sixteening, and top fouring and winning these tournaments are going to be people who are both, you know, skilled Magic players, but also um, kind of good at cost benefit analysis of how much points they should give up, and you know, they're good at playing both the tournament and Magic. Yeah, so, I don't yeah. think it's unreasonable to think that players are allowed to quote unquote game the tournament. Um, because that's just such an integral part of winning. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, cool, cool, cool. Uh, I think that wraps it up for our main topic. Unless anyone has anything to add. Nope. Uh, okay, I, cool. I, you know what? I'll, nope. I'll put a Go yeah. I'll, I'm just gonna put a disclaimer on like basically everything that we've talked about this episode in terms of um like what what like the turn order is, or like your seating or the seating of it um of like just the game in general uh, and how it affects play patterns um this is all like super dependent on like what decks you're playing what decks you're playing against what players you're playing against um it's like obviously a huge part of this is uh like that goes into it is just like experience with certain players certain decks uh so like all all of the conclusions quote-unquote conclusions that we've come to in this episode are all like relatively flexible depending on the meta and what you're actually seeing um mm -hmm. so just you have to be ready to make alterations to your decision making and your um sort of like what your like assumptions going into any given pod are depending on all of that so just make sure again as with anything as with everything in cdh uh you have to make sure that you're thinking about all this stuff with the context of what you're actually playing against yeah this only applies to our meta in fact just download this episode put it onto a usb stick and then throw that usb stick in the trash <laughs> uh, <laughs> what i'm just kidding um, no, yeah, that's a good point um 
everything is flexible and dependent but uh yeah uh cool so then that wraps up the main topic which means it's time for everyone's favorite segment gut check gut check gut check Woo. <laughs> <laughs> okay uh so today's gut check is what deck do you most dread seeing in your pods? So this could be uh there's, there's this is a pretty open question. This could be like tournament specific, this could be um, you know, local meta, just kind of generic, however you want to interpret it. Okay, joke answer out of the way. Uh, Morgan's Marisol deck always. <laughs> <laughs> I would I consider leaving. Just consider uh, leaving. I'm just kidding. Uh, I think, yeah, I think my answer is probably just Cody. I just like, that game is just never fun. It, and okay. it doesn't matter where the Cody is. It's just, like, you're, you're just always playing a game of 3DH and it, you're, it's just never like interactive in any can I manner. Can I get a second answer from you that's not Cody? Because I would also <laughs> say Cody. Which is, uh, which is, which is crazy yeah, considering the amount that you complain about counterpicking in our meta. And it would okay, be well, I mean, uh, this, this this entire question was supposed to be, what is it, like, I just want to talk about counterpicking. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say, like, about counterpicking. I, I, I'm but incredibly no, surprised like, your answer is yeah. just, like, snap Calamax. Okay, let, let, I have the polar opposite take. Like, I yeah. think Cody, yes, but the polar opposite take, which is um, the dedicated Wincomless stacks deck. Mm. So, like, I'm talking about the Duretti's of the format because they just don't win and they're pet decks in my opinion right and the game ends up revolving around that player and but the difference between cody and this and duretti is that duretti really doesn't win <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't end the game yeah it the game revolves around the deck yet it doesn't win reed do you have a, a second answer that isn't cody i mean i feel like i got, I got it out first <laughs> you know <laughs> Yeah, I do. I do. I have actually two more answers. <laughs> All so, right. Well, then why are you getting read to or, can I, No, because I wanted to. Because Cody feels like such it, a gimme. Is you it, know? Is yeah. it Yorian and Calamax? No, I actually like Yorian. Uh, so it's Calamax. So my, my, my number one is going to be Kenrith. Christ, you really traumatized. <laughs> it's, it's Kenrith. Um, and then secondarily, it was I was gonna say Paco Halden, and then I guess you could throw Calamax in that category. The reason being is these are all decks that absolutely shit down the throat of whatever decks I like. All the decks I like, I just can't. I most of the late game decks I play can't beat Kenrith. Like Kenrith just absolutely dunks on me. And then Paco Halden um, and Calamax are very similar. Where. I mean, Paco Holden provides just insane card advantage, but the the scary thing about Paco Holden is just the fucking beater. Um, and it it's it, it definitely like when I'm trying to be like, okay, I'm gonna control the board, I'm gonna control the stack, I'm gonna kind of establish a nice dominant position in this game. And then someone's like, yeah, ha, ha, I played dog turn sideways. I'm like, no. <laughs> um, and it's very very similar with Calamax, where it's like, you know, I I played I guess Calamax a lot when I was playing Baral, and it's like I cannot beat this deck. I cannot beat this deck. There's no way I can fight through the double uh, copies of his instance plus this like seven seven beater attacking me every turn. I'm like, it's just, it's just oppressive. But doesn't Brawl run like every creature stealer in existence? Okay, but so you run Gilded Drake, um, and then the one creature stealer is uh, oh God, what's the? It's attempted by the Auric. Attempted by the Auric. But and that and that is only three CMC or less. So you're just absolutely like Calamax dodges it. 
Um, and like, I guess you could bribery for someone else's Gilded Drake, but yeah, there's, there's, and and there's not that many answers for Kalamax. And then when you do try and answer it, and he just has like double counter spells, you're just so sad. But yeah, uh, those are mine. All right, uh, I think my answer is uh, not like a specific deck, but more an archetype like Nats, which is Sans Blue mid range. I find it, it's just like the most, or like mid-range without blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Because, like, they're just, there are a whole bunch, there's a whole class of decks that, like, aren't fast enough to actually threaten early wins, and aren't disruptive enough to stop the people who are presenting early wins, so it's entirely parasitic on somebody else in the pod, like, stopping you from losing, while you just, like, giggle to yourself and and set up your like stupid long-term value engine that the the person who's currently saving your life can't beat yeah um and and that is a play pattern that i'm i'm not a fan of yeah so like slower than get rog you'd say or get rog speed get rog get rog is like it's at the one. fastest yeah. end of like like i wouldn't necessarily consider get rog a mid-range deck yeah okay yeah. okay but like yeah, anything like at all slower than than Gitrog is just an incredibly frustrating experience. To like, yeah, play I, I I think a very illustrative example of this one was the uh, I played a Tim Natana Snoop deck for a bit. Um, like when Snoop first came out, that was like basically this, which was like I think I played like exactly Oof as its interactive piece, and then the entire That's rest disgusting. of the deck, the entire rest of the deck was just like just like value plans and win con access, and it like it didn't Actually win. Despicable. It didn't it didn't win early because it's playing fucking like Snoop in a Timna deck, so you like you have to get your Timna down and have an attacker in play before you win the game. But it was also just like it was all just like mana and card advantage and like some silences and red blasts which did like nothing to stop you from dying to like actual combos yeah i was gonna um, say because i feel like stacks decks are can sort of fit your description or like you know something like a, a la raspberry but at jam least but it's like i was gonna say to the stacks effects do impact yeah, the game at exactly least, yeah. Yeah. yeah i'd rather yeah. play a hundred games against songs you mid-range than one game against already guys like, <laughs> <laughs> Matt, Matt cannot overstate his absolute hate for Duretti. I hate to pick one particular commander, but there are plenty of decks like this. Okay, I just can't name Duretti any of them except for uh, Duretti. Yeah. <laughs> well, because they're all just you know like no, no like yeah, like yeah, I, 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 know no, I I get okay, it. Okay, yeah, what, yeah. what about what about win combo stacks with like I a, a combat turbo juicer in the command zone? Is that <laughs> like, you're like, talking about? Well, like no, Timna Kamal or Jet like Jetmir yeah. or something like that. Like, yeah, if if you're pure inevitability in the command zone, sure. That's like as uh, as long as you actually have like a way of right. closing but, out but, the but, game. Tim, Timna Kamal is just quote unquote inevitability is like is so like you counter that thing once and they're like, well, it's gonna be turn twelve before I can cast this again, and you're like, <laughs> like uh. Duretti is an asymmetric stacks piece, and you're the only one affected by it. You literally just lose <laughs> card advantage playing it. <laughs> um cool cool uh which brings us uh that wraps up gut check uh if you guys want to chime in with your gut check responses uh check out our discord 
Um, and yeah, that brings us to you know what, Lyndon. I will put a thank you in here for making a very uh, like charter uh, like yeah, yeah. Gut check this time because you <laughs> have not made that effort here previously. Yeah. So. Oh, I didn't make the effort either. It just happened to be that. That's what I thought of while I was on the toilet. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Next yeah. up, we got a listener question coming to us from Varric S. Uh, Varric S asks. How saturated do you think the meta needs to be with mid-range before there is a swing in the meta economy uh, more heavily towards turbo again? Um, and how close do you think? Uh, how close to that do you think we are? I'm noticing the majority of highly successful decks recently uh, fold to turbo. Uh so I I, I would say the majority of majority of highly successful decks recently like folding to turbo I think is probably overstated. Um, I think like. I, I think you have to be pretty deep into, like, the mid-range hell meta before yeah. you get to a point where the mid-range decks just, like, can't beat Turbo anymore. Like, because sort of, like, by definition, a lot of the, like, mid-range decks currently seeing play are, like, blue mid-range decks with a fair amount of interaction, which is just, like, by default, like, that, you don't fold the Turbo. Like, you might have, like, rough matchups sometimes if you're not willing to hold up the mana, but, like, you definitely you definitely have options versus the decks. Um, they really do a good job against fast decks, to be, like... Yeah, I, well, I think there's two different like uh, the way I, I've talked to some people about um, kind of my theory of, of turbo versus mid range and stuff. I think it's just there's two kind of local stable um, maxima like 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 metas where it's like if you're in the uh, if you're in the, the mid rangey meta where, you know, everything's like some kind of like Timna Thrasios, Thrasios, whatever, like like things that are meant to kind of able and able to go to the late game, um, but are like also blue and interactive. You, you throw a turbo deck into that pod, turbo deck is getting absolutely thwomped, right? It's hard to... A single deck can't really move a meta in out, out of that kind of stable point, that stable equilibrium. Um, and it's the same is true for, I'd say, the more turbo-y metas, when there's like four um, turbo decks in a pod and you bring in your kind of mid-rangey control deck, you're just going to get thwomped by turbo because you can't, you know, police the entire table. I mean, like... Um, I I don't I don't know about that one as it really depends on the turbo players because like you know one counter spell or like enough counter spells to stop the first win it can stop the first one from being attempted and therefore can stop the second win like there is an element of that it certainly does depend on the players I know some people are just like they will jam the first win that that is like they they've got a win they'll jam it and then you know next player is like okay well that got stopped i'm just going to jam my win immediately if you're able to stabilize the game and push it to the long term you know i mean that's kind of where control mid-range decks thrive so it's really going to do well but i don't think that's going to necessarily um shift the meta significantly towards uh mid-range i think i think it also depends though on like what the win con access looks like for the mid-range deck like obviously like mid-range i think probably the widest category of decks in the format because like you can put basically anything under the mid-range umbrella unless it's like on yeah. one of the extremes so like it also depends on what the win con access for the mid-range deck looks like like if you're playing like something like blue farm as a mid-range deck which i think a lot of people would consider blue farm to be closer to a mid-range deck than a true turbo deck at this point especially with like a lot of the concessions for includes like that deck would still do fine in a turbo meta right like maybe it's not like the best deck in that meta but certainly like there are a lot of games that you pick up just by doing fast stuff anyway um, i was gonna say blue farm blue farm if if uh I would I would have classed it more in the turbo just because of how focused they are on like you know Nas and, and just a bunch right. of Wincon Destiny. Although that's a deck that can play the mid range well. Yeah. Because um, I was also talking about like Thrasios Timna and um, uh, Timna Krom are two decks where if you swap them 
in their they're 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 some of the best decks in the format for a reason. Um, if you swap them in their respective metas, they might have a slight dip in their kind of dominance and, and win rate, but they're always going to be able to hold their own and yeah. like be fairly elite. Like yeah. you know, I think I think the other thing that's like that's important is that worse there are a lot of mid range decks, but they're still like relatively anti turbo. Yeah, um, and that like makes it hard you know, it's possible to get to, like, a sufficiently late-stage mid-range meta where, you know, like, if if I knew I was only playing against, like, other Thrasios Timna yeah, decks, like, well, okay, guess I'll what? Cut the oof. Collector Oof is yeah. coming out of my Thrasios Timna <laughs> yeah, deck. Yeah. Like, I'm and not we're putting, playing, a, we're why, putting why? a Priest of Titania in, like... Yeah, we're, we're putting yeah. a Priest of Titania. So, like, when people start making swaps like that, they potentially start trimming some of the more proactive interaction, like, down on Mind Break Trap, down on, like... You know, I could even see going so yeah. far as to cutting Dispel if you were, or like, really, really... Even, like, potentially uh, Force of Negation, depending on, like... Yeah, I don't know about like, Force of Neg, because Force of Neg, at least you can hard cast. So I'm, th but, I'm thinking, yeah, uh, like, maybe I'm on, like, Ranger Captain instead, right? Like, we switch over off of Sacred yeah. onto, like, just something with, like, more Rattlesnake. So, yeah. so like, I think as long as as long as the, the mid-range decks are still, like, relatively teched to fight Turbo, it's hard. And I think the other question that's actually arguably more important is how much of the rest of it like if you said okay there's two mid-range decks in every pod like if the third deck that isn't you is a stacks deck like you're just boned it's it's absolutely like the 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 closest expression of pure joy is just playing thrasios timna and then seeing another deck with a worse grind game than thrasios timna play a stacks piece that you yeah, don't yeah, really care yeah, about yeah, yeah like yeah. you're like cool oh, i'm gonna play yeah. my dork and i'm looking at my like bloom tender hand or whatever and the other person goes like the person after you goes land deafening silence and, just <laughs> and you're like, just like yep yeah <laughs> this is all <laughs> i need <laughs> but yeah it's it's also i think i think the actual like the actual tipping point of this current meta that i think that we're gonna see before even the mid-range that like the high color mid-range decks start like teching away from anti-turbo is how much of the meta is going to be comprised of people trying to take advantage of the, um, like, element of surprise, um, like, that has been, like, ongoing for the past year or so. Like, how much of the rest of the meta is people playing one and two color decks that are commandic-centric and trying to steal wins out from other than the mid-range decks, right? Um, because I think once, once you get that capacity high enough, then the turbo decks actually, like, have a good time again. Because, like, if you're, like... A Magda deck or a Yeva deck or a Crick deck is going to be, like, relatively happy if the pod is, like, a turbo deck and two, like, mid-range decks. Because, like, turbo deck gets stopped, you're, like, establishing this creature-based engine that the mid-range decks don't really interact with all that effectively. And then, like, you just get to take a win because, like, somebody else at the table is munching all the interaction. Um, but, like, when you have, like, when the pod is, like, Rog Silas and then, like, Yeva, Magda, Crick all in a line, it's like, okay, <laughs> cool, kill you cool kill you again cool keep doing this so i think yeah. like y y like i i think the the actual tipping point is like how much of the meta and it's not even like the one color decks as well like obviously there are like like two three color even four color predatory decks that like are sort of preying on the fact that like there's somebody else to be the uh responsible one at the table and are just like leaning a bit far over the edge to go over the top of everything else that like i think when when those decks start popping up more and more and more that's when we're gonna see a shift back yeah i think in, in order to have um a meta churn you need to have at least a kind of rock paper scissors dynamic at yeah. least i mean it can oh, go yeah. you can go higher order but like 
you at least need something to be metagaming that's good against the kind of mid-range meta that's weak to turbo and then turbo being weak to like you need that kind of cycle otherwise the meta won't churn it will just stabilize um so i i think the kind of idea of the question being you know how saturated do you think the meta needs to be with mid-range before there's a swing towards turbo again i just i don't think that a meta saturating with mid-range is gonna make people swing towards turbo it's probably just gonna make people swing towards mid-range decks that go the late yeah. the best right yeah if, yeah if, if anything it would be like when do the mid-range decks start becoming worse and that's when there's like three to I mean, like, yeah, <laughs> conceivably when people switch to, like, the super late mid-range decks, that does present, a, like, I, I'm thinking of, like, like I don't know, Hullen is one that, you know, I play that when I, you know, played against a bunch of partners, I'm like, as long as I can stop them from stealing my commander or killing it over and over again, if I can stick Hullen, then, like, I'm just gonna outvalue Thrasios Timna and, like, keep... So playing scary creatures until eventually one of them sticks so um, what i what i was getting at and though like, is turbo decks definitely can beat hullen if you like you you have a bit of stacks for them but like maybe i'd have to tech that like, i what, what i was saying though is that like i think i think what's going to happen is that the third group of decks that beat mid-range decks are i i think likely going to oversaturate before the mid-range decks like start teching away from turbo like I, I, yeah. I think people, I think people are going to start playing like again blue list like mid range decks trying to get over the existing like blue mid range stuff, and I think that those are going to saturate to a point where turbo is good before like we even get close to the mid range decks taking away from turbo to try to beat those decks. Honestly, I think so long as uh, if people don't untech their decks for like if if people keep the mind break traps and stuff like the only the I think the only thing that's really going to steer us away from the mid-range or, or mid-rangey kind of meta is um an arms race um with a lack of turbo in the meta that, that gives turbo an edge but otherwise i think i think it's a pretty stable configuration that's hard to break apart i think the stacks pieces that affect turbo the most are just generically good in the end game already so people are just not going to be cutting them that's like collector oof and then if you go really deep on the mid-range that's like null rod and and turn limiting stuff like rule of law i just don't see those cards getting cut from decks because they're just too good i think it's like the mind break traps that you'd see go down on like the counter suite and then if the if there's enough like if you like go turbo players if there's if there's like you know six less pieces of free interaction in a pod like as a turbo player you know you're pretty happy about that um when people cut like mind break traps and force of nags or misdirections or something i don't think that's good enough I don't think that'd be enough of a swing. Yeah, maybe. I, I think maybe maybe paired with some other shifts, it could be. But yeah, um, mid range, mid range superiority, man. In terms of how close yeah. do you think we are? Um, I'd probably put my finger on like maybe four months away. Um, from a relatively large shift, maybe closer, maybe like closer to two, depending on what people end up like shifting around for uh, tournament meadows. Uh, like the the I think the four month estimate for me is like historical like twenty 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 one rates of change. Uh, it might be that we're at like a much higher rate of change now with like more IRL events and more high profile events with people like trying to tech toward um, tournament meadows more often or like trying trying to like tech harder toward tournament meadows than previously. So it could be that we're on a tighter timeline, but I like it's definitely less than half a year that we're gonna see a rotation. In, I think. I, I mean, um, I think we'd love to see which. Uh, mid-range decks are folding to which turbo decks if you want to follow up. Yeah, uh, Varric, that'd be that'd be sweet. Yeah, I I think like we're also 
we're sort of at a point where it's not necessarily obvious to me that we will switch back to a turbo meta just because like we've we've talked about this specifically when talking about Cody um is that it's relatively straightforward to not lose to turbo and that means people are going to choose to do that more than like than with other types of decks right like how do i avoid losing to like like okay I, you know, I'm told yeah. you're gonna be playing. You're gonna be playing against a mid-range deck. I'm like, okay, what do I need to mulligan for? What do I need to put in my deck to make sure I can win this mid-range game? It's not an easy answer. Whereas yeah, it's like it you're gonna be playing against how... Turbo. You're like, cool. I'll just mulligan for like my dispels and fluster storms or whatever. Like maybe a swan song or fierce to to protect against a breach. And like, okay, that's that done. You um, know how Thrasios pilled your pot is. Oh, so how, how how deep they are in training grounds and so so like I think it's Grip. it's really hard to it it takes a much longer time for people to relax enough that you can start getting them with turbo again because it's relatively straightforward to avoid in a way that like how do I avoid getting stacked out is a question that's hard enough to answer that you can't just be like oh these you know beat stacks in these three easy steps well I'll just do that. Um, whereas that is what happens against Turbo. <laughs> yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you guys like to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact us on Twitter at Into the North Pod via our email, Into the North Podcast at gmail.com, or on our Discord server, the invite link for which can be found in the description for this episode. Extra special thanks to all of our patrons who help cover the expenses for our show and allow us to work towards improving the quality of the podcast. If you too would like to become a patron, we are at patreon.com slash northpodcast. The way you can support us is via our TCG Player affiliate link. So anytime you want to purchase something from TCG Player, if you use our affiliate link, which is in the podcast slash YouTube description, a portion of your purchase goes towards supporting the podcast. Thank you as always to the band Vox Cadre for our lovely podcast music, and to Nate Slover for our equally lovely podcast logo. Next episode will be about in two weeks. Until then, see ya. See ya. Have a good one.